Let's pray and we'll get underway. Uh, Heavenly Father, this is your word, so help us to hear it and listen and learn and change so that we might be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it seems to me that there are some very strange vocations out there. There are odd jobs. You know you can get work as a bacon critic. You, um, you need both an insatiable desire for bacon but also some serious writing chops. And apparently it's a short-term contract, which is probably a good thing, isn't it? Or you could be a snake milker. They're brave souls who collect poisonous venom from snakes by hand. They, they gently expose the snake's fangs and then squeeze out the deadly juices. You could do that as a job. But I reckon a more obvious but nonetheless strange job is to be an actor. I mean, think about it. You spend your entire working life skillfully pretending to be someone else. I once went to um, one of those how to host a murder parties. I don't know if you've been to one of those uh, a few years ago. And for the whole time I had to stay in character. And I was cast as Al Capone early on in his career. Club bouncer but hidden hitman. <laughs> and the whole night I just wanted to get out of character. You know, I wanted to strike up a real conversation with another person and, and get to know them. But we had to stay in character the whole night. It was odd and annoying. I mean, I'm sure there are some perks in being an actor, but um, one of the the sure downsides is having to go to to those interminable awards shows like the Oscars or the Golden Globes that go on forever. Has anyone ever watched any of those in their entirety? Okay, because this morning when Tibby pulled up their hands, I said, how dull. But I had to clarify that I meant the awards show, not the individuals. So long. And I think the only thing that could make those award shows duller is if the same person won every category. But you know what? In the Old Testament epic of Exodus that we're studying all this term, I think God would win all the awards. Like you think best producer, the one who takes the initiative and makes it all happen? Well, that's the Lord, the God of the Israelites. Best director, the one who directs all the action? The Lord, the God of the Israelites. Best actor, the main player, the star of the show? Well, that would be God, the Lord of the Israelites. Uh, I mean, best supporting actor, that would be a tie between Moses, the reluctant leader, and Pharaoh, the archetypal villain. But best screenplay, God. Best foreign film, God. Best scriptwriter, well, it's God. Again, pretty much a clean sweep, which would make for a, a very dull awards night, wouldn't it? But it makes for a terrific story, which we'll see again as we consider the Red Sea escape in Exodus 13 and 14. Because more than anyone else, more than Pharaoh, more than Moses, we learn about God's character. And uh, through the deliverance, through the Red Sea, we also see God's pattern of salvation, his character and his salvation. Now, we are midway through our Old Testament journey through um, the book of Exodus, which literally means departure or way out or exit. We've seen how God's rapidly multiplying people were under great oppression in what was concentration camp conditions in Egypt. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of personal covenant faithfulness, then put his name to work in a series of plagues against Egypt and its gods and its king Pharaoh. And we saw how Pharaoh did not budge through nine devastating opportunities to relent, but only after the plague on the firstborn, where every firstborn son in Egypt died. Right, you remember that line from last week? There was not a house in which someone had not died. The only question was whether it was a son or whether it was a Passover lamb, a perfect sacrifice which absorbed the just judgment of God in place of 
as a substitute for the Israelites. And we noted there are obvious and clear parallels between our salvation from sin and death because our judgment was poured out on Jesus, who is our Passover lamb, when he was sacrificed on the cross. But back in Exodus, Pharaoh finally lets the Israelites go and they leave Egypt in their millions, taking with them the plunder of Egypt and taking with them many Egyptians as well in the loving kindness of God. And yet, that is not the end of the story because Pharaoh again hardens his heart and chased his departing workforce of Israelite slaves. He chased them to the shores of the Red Sea and it's here where we pick up the story today and where we first discover the nature of God's character and then secondly, the pattern of his salvation. So they're the two sort of main headings today. So the first thing that we discover is that the Red Sea displays the nature of God's character. In fact, we see it in high definition. It's like an IMAX theatre, right? Let's follow the story. Exodus 12, verse 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men, plus women and children, probably upwards of 2 million Israelites, as well as many others fleeing Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 51, the Lord brought them out of Egypt by their divisions or in their formations. But in 13, verse 17, they did not flee by the most obvious route. Hmm. The most obvious route was the shorter coastal route called the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. And that's the brown line you can see there along the southern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. But not choosing the obvious route reveals God's great wisdom because obvious is just too obvious so in choosing an alternative route we discover that god knows what is best for his people now friends that's a general principle right the way of the sea that would take them through an egyptian militarized zone and then in in uh, chapter 13 verse 17 it says they would face the coast hugging philistines and they were as bad as they sounded and that might give the israelites cold feet and so god knew what they could handle, and he knew they needed to go the long way around. And I wonder whether you ever think that when you're taking the long way around in life, when things are less straightforward than you wished for or hoped for or planned for, whether that is evidence that God is disinterested in you or has forgotten about you, rather than God knowing what you can handle at any point in time, or perhaps knowing what you need to develop and grow. I wonder when you read his word whether you consider it burdensome or tiresome or whether you can see his wisdom being channeled towards you for your benefit in it. Friends, God is wise. That is his character and we see it here. So he chooses the less obvious alternate route. But then in 14 verse 1, where we picked up the story today, he tells the Israelites to turn back and you think, wow strategically, militarily, disastrous. But of course, God is wise. And so as Pharaoh looks at the meandering Israelites, he sees a a people in confusion and disarray. And Pharaoh plays precisely into God's hands when he changes his mind and pursues them. It may not look obvious, but when you think about it, The death of the perfect Son of God on the cross in the place of sinners did not look like an obviously wise plan either, and yet in both the supreme wisdom of God was at work. Do you know enough of God's wisdom to entrust yourself to it? Well, maybe wisdom is not enough for you. 
Well, we also see God's presence with his people. On the shores of the Red Sea, we discover the wisdom of God is there as well as his presence with his people. I mean, he's always been with Moses, hasn't he? Uh, Exodus will describe God's relationship with Moses as face-to-face or literally it's ear-to-ear. God spoke with Moses, it says, as a man speaks with his friend. But here we see God visibly, manifestly with his people as a whole, travelling with them and ahead of them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire through the night, never leaving its place in the front of the people. Later on in 14 verse 19, we discover the presence of God not only guided them, it also guarded them too, moving from in front of the people to a position between the Israelites and the Egyptian pursuers so that neither went near the other throughout the whole night. You know, friends, in these last days, God is present with us, guiding us and guarding us and convicting us and refining us by his great and wonderful Holy Spirit whom Jesus gives to all Christians, every single Christian. So much so the Apostle Peter can say to us in in 1 Peter chapter 4, do you know the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you if you're a Christian? Of course, you can't see the Holy Spirit visibly like he's a pillar of cloud or fire. And you may not feel different either, but God is present with us. In fact, he's even more present with us than he was with the Israelites because now his Holy Spirit has taken up residences, residence in our spirits, which means when you lose your job, when you lose your health, when you lose your abilities, you don't lose him. He remains with us, guarding us, guiding us, convicting us and refining us. God is wise And friends, God is present. And you see them both here in Exodus at the Red Sea. Not only that, the Red Sea also shows us God's power. I mentioned uh, when I first started here that I think my favourite TV show of all time was The West Wing, uh, one of the best shows ever made. And it's about the President of the United States and it was made at a time when um, you could genuinely make optimistic dramas about US politics. Now, if you haven't seen it, I'm happy to lend you the box set, but you better give it back. Uh, There's this wonderful scene where the president is playing basketball in the White House car park, and uh, he's playing with his young and talented and and rather cocky staff team, and they are whipping his butt. And the president is out of breath, and the staffers are ribbing him, telling him that he needs to take a break, but then it becomes just a little bit pointed because they effectively say this game that they're playing is a metaphor for his presidency. His obsessive need to win overshadows the best advice of his staffers. Mr President, they say, when the poets write your story, they will cast you as a tragic figure. (laughs) Imagine saying that to the president. Well, it's uh, right at the end of the game and the president makes a surprise substitution on his team on comes a seven-foot-six college basketball champion and the president makes some half-hearted uh, kind of suggestion that it's a legitimate substitution because he's a federal employee, but no-one's buying it. But it doesn't matter because he's the president, so they have to play along. So when the staffer tries to shoot the winning basket, the college champ unsparingly, rather dismissively, just swats the ball away. And the president then says to his lippy staffer, Lord Byron, 
right about that. It's a great scene. Well, they lose, the young ones, despite their trash talk and their cockiness. They're outplayed, of course, and they're overpowered. And friends, that is the picture here, isn't it? Verse 6, Pharaoh readies himself and he selects 600 of his best charioteers. I mean, that is the most impressive army of the ancient world. To get the Israelites who are wandering around in a muddle, he presumes. The Egyptian army catches up with the Israelites, verse 9, as they camp by the sea, terrifying them. Ha ha, we've got you now. You are caught between an impassable sea and an unconquerable army, our unconquerable army. But God changes the game, doesn't he? Especially when his people are at risk, when his promises have been questioned, when the glory of his name is on the line. And so he not only moves his angel and his presence between the Egyptians and the Israelites, as we've already seen, he uses a human agent, Moses, whose hand is stretched over the sea. He uses the forces of nature, a strong east wind, in verse 21, to blow back the waters all night long. So the Israelites walked between two walls of water to safety on the other side. And then as the Egyptians follow the Israelites into the sea, during that last watch of the night, the graveyard shift becomes a graveyard indeed. The chariot wheels jam and they fall off and at daybreak the waters went back to normal, swallowing the Egyptian army. It covers the chariots and the horsemen. It covered the entire army of Pharaoh. And you have to think, how fitting is that? that they who drowned the baby sons of Israel might suffer the same fate. That is a game changer, friends. It is a slam dunk. It's what you young people call cooking up in the paint. I think that's what you say. Is that right, Rona? Yes, lost it in delivery maybe. And I'll tell you what though, it's God's power at work, isn't it? For his people and against his enemies. And I would suggest that every one of us here tonight choose our side wisely. So he is wise and he is present and he is supremely powerful. And he is also jealous for his own glory. He does not want to share the loyalty of the people whom he made and loves and continues to sustain with any other thing. No idol, no thing carved out of wood or stone that cannot move, cannot talk nor any ideology or philosophy that is empty and cannot breathe life. No created thing, friend, is worthy of our worship, only the creator. And he wants the world, the whole world to know about him and that would be incredibly arrogant if we were talking about mere mortals, pieces of creation. But when you are the eternal, perfect, wise, present, powerful creator and saviour God, that is entirely appropriate. It is a fitting response. It is a good and godly Desire. So God says in verse 4, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Again in verse 18 he says, The Egyptians will know that I am Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the heat of it all, verse 25, the Egyptians say, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against us, against Egypt. In other words, they come to know the glory of the Lord and God gets the glory that he is rightly due. Do you know, it is a great regret that even Christians sometimes steal the glory of God, even in stories like this one, because they're ashamed, they're ashamed of the testimony of Scripture. 
But when Christians are embarrassed about the miraculous, as if God couldn't do with his own creation what it says he did, as though it was just coincidental, or there were only natural forces at play, our attempts to explain the text away robs God of his glory. It really does. There's a story of an old um, liberal minister preaching in an old African-American church once, and when he referred to the passing, this passing of the Red Sea, someone shouted out, Praise the Lord! Save it all those chilling through them deep waters. Praise God for his miracle. And the preacher, who I imagine was preaching in a pulpit like that, looking down on people, condescendingly said, there was no miracle. It was marshland. The tide was ebbing. And the children of Israel picked their way across six inches of water. Praise the Lord for killing all them Egyptians in six inches of water. Twice God commands, twice Moses responds, twice creation obeys and the Israelites are delivered through two walls of water and God will get his glory. It's a wonderful story of deliverance, isn't it? One in which we see in high definition, IMAX really, God's wisdom, his presence, his power and his glory. Friends, he is wise, so we ought to listen and obey. And he is present, so we ought never to think that we are alone. And he is powerful to act in our favour, so we ought to choose our side wisely. And he is worthy of glory, so we ought to give him our allegiance. Well, even above seeing these aspects of God's character, his wisdom, presence, power and glory, what we see in the Red Sea deliverance is a pattern of salvation that, that really is the pattern of salvation. The Red Sea reveals God's pattern of salvation. It's the second thing tonight. So let's zero in on the interaction between the Israelites and Moses and God as the Egyptians approach in verses 10 to 14. Though the Israelites had seen the wonders of God, I mean, quite... Quite remarkably, though they had marched out of Egypt, it says in verse 8, boldly, defiantly, though they knew firsthand the presence and the power of God, instead of looking hopefully to God and desiring his glory, they looked fearfully back at their enemies and wanted to go back into slavery in Egypt. And you think, that is ridiculous. The scars are still fresh and you want to return there. And they say, it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the desert, they cry. And uh, it's so much like us, isn't it? You know, like like we so often do, at the first sign of trouble, we want to return to our, the false security of our old ways of living and coping our old habits, our old traits, our flimsy comforts. And there'll be more about that next week. But contrast that to the response of Moses in verse 13, and here it's Moses talking, where he says, don't be afraid, stand firm. Not fear, firm. Guys, you're going to see the deliverance of the Lord, but you won't see those Egyptians ever again. You will see God's salvation, but you won't see your oppressors anymore. It's very interesting words, aren't they, that reveal God's pattern of salvation. God will bring the action, remember? Best producer, director, actor, screenplay. He will bring the deliverance 
the Lord will do the fighting for the Israelites' part. It starts in verse 13 with stand firm and it ends in verse 14 with stand still. Now, I don't think that idea of standing still is a complete and exhaustive summary of the Christian life, right? That kind of let go and let God, vague sort of laziness. Often in the Christian life, we need to be active, exercising our faith, putting it to work. So it's not about laziness or vagueness, but it does reveal and remind us that our deliverance is based upon the former action and initiative of God rather than our efforts. That is, our salvation depends on what he has done for us, not what we have done for him. So stand firm, stand still. Now, it seems to me that standing still is not something that comes naturally to soldiers, does it? When you see those military parades from North Korea or Russia or China, where all the soldiers are marching in step and they're kicking their legs up way too high while saluting their leaders who peer down on them from on high. I mean, that's what soldiers do, isn't it? They march and they move and they fight. British guards, on the other hand, they are experts. They are excellent at standing still. I don't know if you've ever seen that footage, uh, usually in the London summer, so if you one or two days there, um, where they're all standing in line in their very heavy gear with the big hats and the heavy red coats, row after row, and you might see the Queen or the King inspecting her troops, and then a fella way over there, he, the other side, he just falls over like this, fainting under the sun's heat. I love this photo because even though he's fainted and he's fallen over, he's still playing, right? He's like, don't worry, Mum, still in tune. <laughs> Haven't given up. Soldiers, man, they find it difficult to stand. And I I guess that shows us that the Israelites, they're more spectators than soldiers here, aren't they? It certainly shows us God's pattern of salvation. Now, friends, just think about it for a moment. If, If God had awaited for them to make the first move, they wouldn't have been saved. Did it look like they were going to make the first move? If God waited for them to take the initiative, they'd still be standing on the edge of that sea complaining to this very day, wouldn't they? So he takes the initiative, after which they fear and believe. You know it's only in the very last verse of the chapter that when the Israelites, it says, when the Israelites saw all that God had done, they feared the Lord and put their trust in him. Now, friends, that is the pattern of salvation. First, God delivers us from danger. He saves us where we cannot save ourselves. Then we respond in faith, trusting him and giving him our devotion and worship. That is the pattern. We see it at the Red Sea, the archetypal salvation event of the Old Testament. And we see it in the person of Jesus who saves us from our twin oppressors of sin and death for we cannot save ourselves. In Luke chapter 9 in the New Testament, Luke uh, records the transfiguration of Jesus. It's a, um, like a, a vision, a glorious vision. And uh, he's on a mountain. That, this is Jesus is on a mountain meeting with God. And right now our Bible antenna should be up because here is a man of God meeting with God on a mountain. And Moses, who had died some 1,500 years earlier, is there with Jesus in dazzling glory. Right? It's a brilliant, visible visitation, a vision. The great Old Testament prophet Elijah is also there in his dazzling brilliance. And so these two Old Testament greats somehow commune with Jesus. I don't know exactly how it works. And the disciples are allowed to witness this glorious convention. And it is so interesting to me how Luke records it in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. 
He says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, I know you guys are really smart, so you might know this already. But when it says departure, do you know what word Luke uses? Luke uses the Greek word for exodus. When Moses met with Jesus on a mountain, they spoke about Jesus' exodus. And when I found that out, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Jesus spoke about his exodus. And of course, the exodus he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem, it's talking about his exodus from life as he was killed on a Roman cross for our sins in our place to bring us back into the presence of God. The departure he was talking about is a departure from the favor of God when on the cross Jesus experienced the righteous wrath of God that was due to fall on us because of our sin and which was instead meted out upon him, though he was sinless. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. That is magic. Jesus' exodus is the event that brings deliverance from our spiritual slavery to sin and eternal death. You know, the scriptures consistently, Old and New Testament, say we are naturally slaves to sin. It has power over us from which we are unable to free ourselves. We just can't. We need somebody else to go ahead of us, to deliver us. And it is no one other than Jesus himself who says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Whoops, that means we're all guilty. right? That's all of us. But, he says, if the Son, referring to himself, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Free from the power of sin over us, so that we can now say no to ungodliness in a way we previously could not free from the penalty of sins so that instead of eternal dread, we can now look forward to everlasting splendor in the presence of the one who went ahead of us through his own exodus from life. Friends, it's magic. And I wonder if you've not yet considered that, whether that's something you ought to consider for your life this very day, this very night. As Moses and Elijah and Jesus met up on that mountain of glory, man, wouldn't it have been a sight? Wouldn't you have loved to eavesdrop onto that conversation? I don't know everything they talked about, but I, but I do know the pattern of salvation. It's one in which God takes the initiative. Producer, director, actor, screenplay. And it's one in which Jesus suffers, departs, exits absorbing the righteous wrath of God, delivering us from spiritual death and danger, saving us, for we cannot save ourselves. And because he's done all of that for us as a matter of history, our response is one of faith, turning to God, trusting in his wisdom, knowing his presence, not being ashamed of his power, and seeding him glory, allegiance, and our worship. Standing still is not the exhaustive description of the Christian life, but God going ahead, whether that's in Egypt, the Red Sea, or in his son on the cross, and us standing firm, is not just a a whale of a tale in the Old Testament. It remains the pattern of salvation. Let's pray together as we finish.
Heavenly Father, tonight, as Ray prayed at the beginning, we praise you. We praise you for all that you have done for us, taking the initiative, the first step, saving us, for we cannot save ourselves. And we ask that as a matter of a response, we might turn to you and trust in your wisdom and know your presence and not be ashamed of your power and give you our glory, allegiance and our worship for you deserve nothing less. And we pray this in the wonderful name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.